Hello and welcome to the Station Tapes on 21 Soul. I'm your host, Lewis Marks, and on this podcast, I share intimate interviews with some of the best musicians in the world. In my role at Ropadope, I interview the artist as we prepare for the release of their next record. I want to get the backstory, a sense of their intent and motivation. I found that given the opportunity in a relaxed setting, they feel free to open up about life and the challenges of being a professional musician. This week, I get on the line with Thor Madsen, a.k.a. Thor DeForce. It was fascinating to hear his experiences growing up in Denmark, making his way to the New York scene and collaborating with the Cats at New Blue. His new record, Sounds of the Mansion, is a sweeping work, a deep dive into his sound. The record is easily accessible, yet continues to bring you further into Thor's world. Let's have a listen. Welcome to the Station Tapes on 21 Solo. I have the great pleasure today of speaking with Mr. Thor Madsen, a.k.a. Thor DeForce. How are you? I'm good. How's it going? It's good. It's a winter day here in East Philadelphia. Yes, same in Denmark. You are in Copenhagen? Yes, that's true. Is that where you're from, by the way? Well, I, I was brought up in Aarhus, which is the second biggest city in uh, in Denmark, but I moved to Copenhagen in 95, uh, and then I moved to New York. So, yeah, I've been here a while. Well, this is, this is interesting for, for, for me, um, and I, I'm going to learn as we go, and hopefully people will as well. Um, you know, we often talk about music communities and, and, and what that's like, you know, from Dallas with the church uh, and magnet schools uh, yeah. to other cities, but we really haven't ever had the opportunity to hear what you know what 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 our music communities like in Copenhagen. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, I think you know probably next to New York, or maybe even as much as New York is 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 the city you know with the with the most musicians per capita, I think, in the world, or something like that. You know, it's it's there's a lot. A lot of lot of bands and musicians, um, and you know, there's probably a bunch of reasons for that. But I think one of the reasons, um, one of the, the reasons, will be that there's a lot of um, funding for for the arts, even though it's declining. It's still, you know, they put money into to arts. So interesting that that helps the the whole scene. Yeah, no doubt. And obviously, we, we, you know, here in the United States, we, we have a lack of that. So what happens is that it, it, the funding and communities come in different ways, like through the church. Yeah. Yep. So paint the picture for me. If, if Well, I mean, you know, it's like Denmark is, I don't know how much your listeners know about Denmark, but I mean, one thing about Denmark is, is it, there's free education, free healthcare, and, and all that good stuff that uh, Bernie Sanders talks a lot about <laughs> these days. Um, so, um so, so free education also um, means free education at the conservatories. And now, you know, when I went there, uh, it was like conservatories, and now they actually adapt the system that's compatible with the university world. So now, um, now it's you know equivalent to a bachelor and masters and and stuff like that. And then when when I went to the conservatory in the uh, in the mid nineties, um, there was a very good. Um, you know, like there was a, there was a really good lobby from within the conservatories that lobbied for more people being accepted at the conservatories. And at the same time, there was a huge lack of uh, teachers, music teachers. Okay. So actually when I, when I entered the conservatory at, in 92, 
I think either, you know, every single one of us could have gotten a full-time job teaching even before we, we went. So there was a big lack of music teachers. And so from one year to the next year, they tripled uh, all the uh, five conservatories. So that's quite a lot of people being educated. Uh, and it's still quite a lot, even though now, like everything else, uh, they're struggling a little bit because um, it's being cut down in different ways. But, but it's still, you know, when you compare to other countries, it's still substantial. That's amazing. So, so, but the base, so the base programs at the conservatories or even on a, on a, on a lower school level, is it, is it classical music based? Well, they, in the, uh, I guess it was like the late 90s, late eighties, the first one emerged and that was the one in Copenhagen that, that what they called rhythmic conservatory. I hope there's no unrhythmic conservatories, but what they mean by that is it's not, it's a non-classical conservatory. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a big fight between the classical world and the non-classical world. And that's why somebody ended up forming this um, rhythmic conservatory. And that structure sort of like um, is maintained now. So now we have five of them. And, and uh, the one in, in, in Copenhagen is actually physically um, separated from, from the classical conservatory, but all the four other ones are um, in the same buildings, same structure as the classical conservatories, but just two different uh, routes you can take. Oh, that's just so amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's so that's, so that, that's, one part of, that's, that's one part of it. And so another part of it is that there's funding for venues, and they have what they call regional venues that get extra funding. Um, and the regional venue, so, so Copenhagen will have one uh, or the, the, the greater metropolitan area have a few and um, other, other parts of the country too. And these venues, um, they have to show diversity in their programming. So, um, the, so, so that also means that you can actually... I mean, it's not it's not something you, you you don't get rich off of music in Copenhagen either necessarily, but you could still, you know, it's it's a little better than say our neighbors to the south, Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's much harder to survive as a musician in Germany than it is in in uh, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. It's really wonderful when a when a when a, a country, you know, a large community uh, respects music uh, yes. as a value in the in the in the culture. Yes. Uh, amazing. So what's it like on the street? I mean, let, let's start with you. You started playing at a very young age, yeah? Yes, I picked up the guitar at the age of seven. Um, and I don't really remember anything other than my brother wanted to play guitar. And, you know, I looked up to him, so I wanted to play guitar too. Mm-hmm. And we didn't, we didn't really, we didn't have any formal training the, the first many years. He just kind of like figured it out on his own. Mm-hmm. And he showed me and I you know after a few years i was able to figure stuff out on my own so the first i guess you know apart from a few random lessons i had it wasn't until i was about 15 i think that i that i you know i found a real like a jazz guitarist like the the main jazz guitarist in my city and i started taking lessons with them who were some of the uh 
you know, when you're trying to figure it out on your own, who who were some of the, the musicians that you were listening to? Well, I, re- I, I clearly remember that because first we played acoustic guitars. You know, we, I was seven, my brother was 10. And then I, I vividly remember the first day, the day he brought back an electric guitar that he bought for his own money oh, and boy. plugged it into his, uh, his <laughs> hi-fi stereo. And I, I remember I was sick that day. I was home from school in my bathrobe and I, he let me play that guitar through his stereo. And I, you know, I was in headphones and his stereo in my bath uh, robe playing uh, Smoke on the Water for like probably four hours straight, you know. So uh, that, was, that was sort of like, and that was so, I remember thinking it, it was so crazy. It was so outlandish that he actually got an electric guitar at that time. I was like, I was totally blown away. What changed your life right there. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, there was a, and, you know, I, I, I keep mentioning my brother because he was really uh, instrumental in, in my musical, you know, upbringing. And my, my parents got divorced and he, and then, but, but they lived right next to each other. And from the, from around 12 years of age, I would almost every day, I think, go to his, you know, visit him, go to his room and he would play me all this stuff. Um, you know, that was, uh, he was into, uh, David Bowie and, and also like Brian Eno. And then a little later on the whole, um, you know, a little later on the, the whole knitting factory scene was something that we also, like everybody, uh, in, in where I grew up was like, they, they were into all this like weird stuff. And he started working in a, in a record shop. So, um, I, I would hang out there and he would he gave me a lot of my my first albums that still you know a major inspiration for me i remember he, he gave me we want miles when i was 14 mm-hmm. um and I, that, that's when i heard how you know with mike stern and how, what he can do with the guitar and jazz so that that was really actually the turning point for me i was i was into all kinds of other stuff before then but after hearing that i really got serious about uh investigating the, the whole jazz idiom and i I started going to the library and buying records and he gave, he also gave me my first monk album and, mm-hmm. you know, and then I, I sort of like, just like went to, I went to the library. I mean, I also bought albums, but I, I think I probably, you know, I went to the, I would go to the library and get 20 albums, um, take them home for a month, tape them. And I would, I would tape them on cassette tapes. I remember being really meticulous about writing down all the info which I thought was great, actually, because I think I remember stuff from back then just from writing it down. I had to copy all the the cover notes and and who was playing and and right. what year it was recorded and and all that stuff. Something I something that's that's not really happening anymore when you when you listen online. I mean, you have you you can seek out that information, but it's not really available in your player, which I think is a is a real shame. Yeah, and it just doesn't become part of the experience. But you no. know. It, it's a different world. We wrestle with this all the time about what it yeah. is, how it's changed. Yeah. You know? And I think it's also, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit, you know, I think it's, it, it's not really giving credit to, to the people who participate in a project. I mean, you see Madonna's face on an album, but the 200 people who were part of that process, they're not, they're, they're sort of forgotten. I, I, I think it's a shame. I, I I agree. Uh, we're we're wrestling with you know how how that how that changed. I think that the real answer, although a lot of people say that you know demise of vinyl, which was certainly a, a coup for the for plastics manufacturers, yeah. and digital music. But um, I, I think that you know I I grew up in the in the sixties and seventies, and as a young 
young person. There, there really wasn't any, there wasn't a lot else to do. Like, so there's so yeah. many other things yeah. to do right now. You know, we had three TV stations, no skateboards, no video yep. games. Yeah. You know, even, exactly. even sports was like, you know, wasn't as ubiquitous as, uh, uh, an activity uh, as yeah. it is now for people to go attend sporting events. So yeah. now we have to work on bringing it back. Uh, we were hoping the internet would, would help, but now information is so scattered. We try to, yeah. that's yeah. what the podcast is about, you know, in a way. It's yeah. like, let's get some more detail in here. Yeah. So let's jump forward. You, you had to make the trip to New York. Uh, you mentioned the Knitting Factory. So you ended up in New York City at some point? Yeah. I mean, when I was... I was actually born in Chicago, but by Danish parents, we moved back when I was an infant. And then the first time, and then I, I spent a couple of summers in California when I was young, but I don't really remember too much of that. So the first time I, I came back to the States was in, in 87 and I was 17 years old. And we went to, my dad was, um, living in Princeton, working at the university for a year. So we were there, but we also visited New York a couple of days mm -hmm. and um, they were I mean my my dad and uh, my stepmom they were already living in Princeton there and they they had they had gone to Sweet Basil in New York almost every weekend since they they got there they had to get out of Princeton obviously <laughs> on weekends so they were they were sort of regulars at at, um, at Sweet Basil and um, so I went to see Gilevans and the Monday Night Orchestra with them in 87 Wow. With the uh, with I can't even exactly remember who was in the band. But I, I clearly remember George Adams was in the band. Uh, Tony Levin I think was there, and mm. you know a lot of the and I think actually Hiram Bollock was playing guitar that night. I'm not totally sure, but that was you know like that was the, the that was the big that were the, 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 those were the cats and 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 they still are the, yeah, the ones yeah. that are still alive. And that Monday night big band is still I think a milestone and also. Because he was also playing the Jimi Hendrix tunes and 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 really trying to, and maybe maybe you know he was bridging the gap between jazz and related genres, and I think that gap is much smaller now, because uh, there's so many people doing that. But back in the '80s, that was kind of a new thing. Yeah, as yeah. I remember, it was a little more segregated the, the genres and everything is a little more like floating and people weave in and out of different genres in a different way now. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because the radio would play all the different genres, but the, yeah. but the artists would play, you know, their genres. Yes, yes. You know? Um, so then, so yeah, so that was a big, uh, you know, I, I, and I, it, that's probably, that's probably when I got it in my head that I, I, I had to go to New York at some point. So then I started, uh, I, sent, I started conservatory uh, in 92, and then actually right from the beginning, I wanted to go and they were very reluctant uh, at the conservatory. And that's why I actually, I, I switched to, I moved to Copenhagen, was still going to the conservatory. I was still at the conservatory in Aarhus, but then I made the switch. I called up the the head of the um, conservatory in Copenhagen. And I, I, I told him, listen, you know, I, I really want to go to New York. They, they won't let me. Can I, can I please attend your school and will you send me? And he was, yeah, sure. Good. He just right, right there. He said, that's fine. And he, he even helped me, you know, he wrote a nice uh, letter of recommendation. And so I raised money through, um, you know, I, I was applying all kind of um, grants and stuff. And, and, uh, and then I moved in, in 97, which was a little bit later than I initially planned, but it just took a while to get everything together. 
Well, it's interesting because now you end up in a, in a, in, a, in a different in a different environment. Uh, yeah. Uh, pro- progre- maybe equally as progressive, but uh, certainly different. I wanted to ask you at what point uh, did electronic instrumentation factor into what you do, and was it there? Yeah, I mean, well, in in '96, I had done an album called Real Time, Real Time, and we and and also I had done a little bit of like techno with my friend, and just like sort of like. Because I remember when, when I was in high school, that was like the first sort of like electronic movement that I knew of in Denmark. And and back then I really hated it. I thought it was I thought it was cheating. I thought it was like I mean all the sure. stereotypes you can you know. I, I thought it was weird that they built, brought an old Atari computer on stage and all that. And I was just into playing funk and rock and jazz and you know like more old school stuff. And then yeah, I don't really know what the turning point was but i i mean massive attack and that whole bristol london scene was a big impact on a lot of us and i think also the way that they actually were able to mix the electronic with the with the normal instrumentation and and tricky you know was a big influence in that way and also early hip-hop and i you know i went to festivals i remember when i had my own acid jazz band and and also the acid jazz scene was a big influence on me because that was the exact bridge I needed between the jazz world and something that was a little fresher back then. Yeah. So, um, so Diggable Planets, you know, an old, um, uh, <laughs> there's, some, there's something you know about, you know, that was a big, that album was, was, was big. And I, st- I got a sampler and started messing around with, with sampling stuff and uh, creating beats and all that. What so, I like about Diggable Planets is it was, it was big in a, in a very broad way. So yeah. it really didn't matter what your style of music was, you know, and unless you're a, a, a purist in your genre, you could listen to that record and go, wow, yeah. this, this is cool. Yeah. You, know, you didn't know, you weren't even thinking that this is crossing anything. No. I mean, you know, the writers were saying it, but it didn't matter. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Um, so let, let's, uh, so, you, so you spent some time with the, with all the crew down at New Blue, um, yeah. I want to ask you real quick about the name Thor de Force. Uh, you referenced somewhere that uh, John Farris gave you that nickname. Is that correct? He, he did. Yeah. I was I was in a before or actually yeah a little before New Blue. I can't even remember what year it opened, but a little before that, um, I was playing with a hip hop crew called the Real Life Show, and we had a residency at um, Easy Bar on First Avenue. And back then they called me World World Tour. That was that was my uh, that was my stage oh, name, <laughs> World Tour. And then I think and, and uh, Malik, who was the rapper, he also he was part of the first generation of New Bluers, and um, so he called me World Tour. But then I think we, and John Farris was always there. He he was he was there. I think he was there every night for wow. many years, sitting in the corner, and you know he knew everybody and. We hung out late and he just, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but he, did, he he was definitely the one who coined that name. And that just, I, I just adapted it because I thought, yeah, it was funny and witty and it was great. I want to just give a quick shout to Ilhan and New Blue because, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of work to help uh, build music community wherever you're building it. Yeah. And uh, it is truly uh, amazing uh, history. And if people aren't familiar, they should it be is. that. And also, you know, I I have to say that I didn't really see it 
when he because he we, we were working in the studio before New Blue mm-hmm. at Temple of Soul, and they moved around. But I think at that time it was on twenty six between uh, six and seven, and um, and he was so tired because he was touring and he was producing and recording. And I remember he fell asleep every night while I was you know on the buttons. Um, and then one night he said, "Yeah." Because it used to be a dance studio. I mean, I knew the space before it was turned into Nubu because I knew I knew him way before. Oh, that's why the mirror. Open. Exactly. So it was a dance studio, and um, and then they they rented out the space to somebody who was dying textile, and the, the fumes of the textile were making everybody in the building dizzy. <laughs> so he's like, I got I got to do something. And that's and then he he came to me one day and said, "Yeah, I think I'm gonna you know I'm gonna throw these people out and I'm gonna take over the place and I'm gonna do a club." And I I remember telling him, "You crazy? You, yeah. I mean, how how are you gonna do that? You I mean you, you you already you know you got so much in your plate already? How is that? That's not even possible." So I actually I actually tried to dissuade him and luckily uh, without <laughs> without yeah. success. Yeah, and it's really happening now, which is which is yeah. Yeah, now it's two two different clubs. So he expanded. Yeah. So let's let's move forward. So on on uh, on March first, people will be able to pre-order your new uh, album, uh, "Sounds of the Mansion." Uh, official release date March 29th. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this music? And, and yeah, I mean, it's 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 my music. So it's, it's really a solo project with with the help from. Uh, from a good friend who's who's uh, drumming, also a great musician. So it's really a solo project, a studio project, but it's also a band. You know, performed already um, numerous time in New York with with the band. So live and 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 uh, on the album is it's slightly different, but it's the same basic concept of of instrumental music with all the influences that that I have from both from my pre-jazz history, all the jazz stuff, all the crossover between jazz and electronica, the straight up EDM I've done. I'm, 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 I'm really trying, uh, and maybe it's overly ambitious, but I'm really trying not to leave anything out. I mean, unless, unless it doesn't, I think it does, you know, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit, but I'm, I'm really trying to be open that everything that I like and love can, can enter this music. So it's 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 really a personal retrospective in a way. Of, yeah, it is. It is. It's 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 and it's it, you know it's it's I have nothing against current genres and there's also a lot of current stuff in there. But I'm also not maybe for the first time I'm totally open about my um, you know my influences and not trying to you know just make something contemporary for the sake of making something contemporary. I think I mean. I think it is contemporary in in the way it's put together, but it's definitely there's definitely references to a lot of uh, older stuff and a lot of the older and old virtues. I would say, you know, like uh, chords and and you know improvisation and you know advanced uh, flows of the form and and all that stuff from the seventies and eighties that I still love and that I think is missing a little bit from some of the current music, at least. Yeah, we live in an interesting time, uh, you know, post post internet disruption, where um, it's both important to uh, document the past a- as well as chart a path for the future. I think you know, so it, it's interesting to see you do this because yeah. I think it's very important 
people need to, uh, with all the clutter of information that's out there, I think a lot of history is lost. Yeah. Uh, and I think that um, that can be done and still be progressive. And I think you've done it here. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about another, I, I noticed there's another project that you that you perform on uh, due out this year as well. Uh, is that Raga Jazz? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that that's uh, my good friend, Lars Müller, who's a great sax player and also spent time in New York in the late 80s. Um, he, he studied Indian music for like on and off for the past 30 years. And um, so after doing a lot of other stuff, right before this Indian project, he, he, he made an album called Rewrite of Spring with the, featuring Dave Liebman and Marilyn Masur. Uh, that was like a, a new take on Stravinsky's uh, Le Sacre. Interesting. So right after that, and I think they are sort of like intertwined in, in a way, some of the principles he developed there also carried over into the next project, which was a which was even bigger because it was big band plus chamber orchestra plus two Indian soloists. One is Kala Ramnath, who's an amazing violinist, and she's like, yeah, she's a world star. And... The, the top of player Abhijit Banerjee is also, uh, you know, he's he, he's one of the top uh, top players in India, and we're talking North Indian uh, classical uh, raga music. So he did this big project with the two of them, and out of the big project, and that was like thirty five people. Out of the big project grew a smaller group with the drummer from that project, himself on saxophone, the two Indians violin. Um, tabla and then me on guitar so like a baseless format so we're trying to really like integrate the north indian raga uh, music with the uh, with jazz that's the whole project it's, it caught my eye because uh, there's an artist here at ropadope uh, richard x bennett um who who I'm, I'm not sure if these are similar but the concept is is, is yeah just, yeah um but i wonder you know, taking it back, you mentioned earlier on uh, rhythm conservatory, uh, rhythmic conservatory, and um, we'll be dealing in 2019 with a, a few records that come out um, about the concept of um, the depth and diversity of rhythm itself. Yeah. Uh, as and and the and and the simple fact, um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing uh, Christian Scott on this one that. Uh, you know, uh, uh, melody uh, has been uh, prioritized in Western music over rhythm. Well, it, it the way I see it is like harmony has been over prioritized, and, uh, and melody and and because I mean uh, this is <laughs> this is a big topic, so I'll just like try to you yep. know like keep it brief. But because we because harmony developed in Europe. Um, 500 years ago, we had to retune our scales because we wanted to play in different. We ended up wanting to play in different keys, and so we did the equal tempered uh, tuning of the piano. Mm-hmm. But the equal tempered tuning of the piano is out of tune, as people who study this will know. It's not in. It's not in. Uh, you know, it's not in sync with the uh, with the overtones of any any given note. So everything is a little bit. Uh, out of tune and i think over the past 500 years we we sort of um we adapted our ears to deal with this out of tuneness in a way that hurt our melodic sense 
because a lot of these like small inflictions of, on melodies that you hear in Indian music really, I mean, if, if you hear too much music with Western harmonies, I think you lose that sensitivity for these small, small variations in pitch. So that's the way I see between harmony and, and, uh, and melody. And definitely in, in, in classical history and in classical way of viewing music, rhythm is, was always the, you know, it was always viewed as a lower level than harmony and melody. There was a very clear hierarchy between yeah. melody being most important, harmony being the second and rhythm being the third. And I think what I do and what a lot of people are into now is really trying to flip that upside down and say, okay, everything, rhythm is where we connect. And rhythm is also where we really can, in the most, I think, in the most forward, easy way, we can connect with people from different musical cultures through, through rhythm. And that's, that's, I remember that from moving to New York. I, I was kind of like stunned uh, I mean, first of all, I, I I saw my own shortcomings when it comes to rhythm right away because it was like it, New York is such a rhythmic city. Not even the, not just the music, but the whole city is like you, the the sound of traffic. You know, everything has a rhythm, and and I also saw how people from very different musical traditions that was their meeting point. That they they met in rhythm before anything else. So that was really interesting to me to to sort of elevate rhythm to be the most important aspect of music. Beautifully said, and and just just to, you know we can have a long uh, socio political conversation about this, but we'll just leave it at yeah yeah. Um, let's all you know it it it, it may well be the answer uh, that music will bring us together finally. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we if we focus on that. So uh, Thor, I want to. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm looking forward to Sounds of the Mansion, March 29th, with a pre-order on March 1st. And I urge people to uh, dig in. And uh, all uh, great music uh, improves with time. Uh, and that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, I urge people to take the time and, and listen. Uh, right. I'm still, uh, I'm still digging in and, it, and it's <laughs> revealing new things uh, each time I listen. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, that's our show for the week. Thanks for listening to The Station Tapes. If you like what we do, please subscribe on Mixcloud at 21 Soul. And you can also find us on Stitcher, Apple, and Spotify. Our 21 Soul video series features in-person interviews, music discussion, and live performances. And you can find that on YouTube at Ropadope99. Big thanks to our producer, Nick Perry. Our general manager is Fran DiRubo. The Station Tapes theme song is from Red Hook Soul by Michael Blake. And big thanks to all the people who keep the flame burning, to all the musicians who pour their creativity into the world, and thanks to those of you who are taking the time to listen. We hope you enjoy the show. <laughs>